Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. As always... We would like to thank our listeners and really appreciate any reviews and ratings you provide for us on the podcast. Now, today we welcome on Lincoln City CEO, Liam Scully. Liam has been at Lincoln since 2017, where he's seen their rise through the English Football League, which includes their exciting promotion push to the Championship this season. He has over 18 years of vast experience working in numerous roles in football, but as well as Liam's success in sport, he also holds a number of non-executive director roles outside and he's a keen adventurer and fundraiser. It's fair to say that Liam's list of roles and achievements show that he's sprinkling gold dust on many people's lives and we know that he also does this on today's podcast. Enjoy everybody. Hi Liam, Thank you for coming on today. Luke, for those less familiar with who you are, could you just share with us a little bit about your background and what your formative years uh, look like? Yeah, so uh, born and raised in, in Sheffield. I uh, was a Sheffield United fan uh, growing up, season ticket holder and played uh, football uh, throughout Sheffield and, um, and, and was, I suppose, reasonable enough to, uh, to represent the city and, and various other teams. Um, like most boys, hoped to be a professional footballer, but that dream never quite materialised. Um, but my dad, his uh, his team was Doncaster Rovers, and he used to go watch them week in, week out. So I used to flip between Sheffield United and Doncaster Rovers, depending who was playing at home. Um, and I was just very fortunate enough to apply for a job um, on leaving school with, with, with Doncaster Rovers or football in the community, as it was then, um, and, and get an apprenticeship in, in sports coaching um, and did a couple of years there. And Thankfully, that went well, got, got kept on. And to, to shortcut it, I did probably 15, 16 years at Doncaster in various different roles within the, the foundation and within the football club side of things. And um, found myself, you know, at Lincoln nearly four years ago as, as chief exec, having, having met the chairman. So, yeah, a lifetime in football. Um, very fortunate to, um, to have had that experience. But, uh, yeah, someone that uh, very much has, uh, has seen probably every role and, um, and every job there is to do. So going back to Doncaster, Doncaster Rovers in the foundation, uh, we had a conversation most recently about that and some of the roles, the responsibilities and the duties that you, yeah, you held at the club. How did they help shape you now as, as a person? Look, I think first of all, I was, you know, I was going in at right at the very bottom of the rung. I was the apprentice, and it was back in the days where uh, the apprentice knew exactly what uh, what place they had and what role they had in the organisation. So, my team making skills came on phenomenally well in those two years, and uh, I was given, you know, a certain number of jobs and tasks along with my, you know, fellow apprentices that we had to to do. But I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, it, it was sports coaching, and it, and it kept me, you know kept me fit, kept me, you know, in the game that I loved, you know, gave me some discipline um, in around the technical aspects of learning how to be a football coach. Um, but it, it was more than that, you know, I was surrounded by some real outstanding people. 
the guy leading the, the program was a guy called Eric Randerson, who was, um, you know, everybody knows Eric in Doncaster. He's the, the godfather of football in, in Doncaster. You know, uh, a real humble, um, real humble guy, a bit of a pied piper. You know, you just want to work hard and, and, and do well for him. And um, I think my, my experience and, you know, it was a, it was a soft landing into the working world. Um, where it gave me the opportunity to kind of learn my skills and, and develop a trade somewhat, um, but equally surrounded by people that, that wanted you to do well. You know, there was a bit of stick and a bit of banter and you had to, you know, they'd uh, make, make sure that you were, um, you know, your, your eyes were wide open to the world. Um, but it was, you know, as a true apprenticeship should be, it was a great opportunity to learn um, new skills and, and kind of, you know, dip your toe into the working world. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so, so great, great couple of years doing that. I know also you, you carried around a little notebook as well because there was certain terminology that might have been used in meetings that you attended. And uh, I know you spoke quite fondly about the experience, but particularly, why did you carry the little notebook about? What was that all about? Yeah, I was, I was you know, I was a kid that, had, you know, grown up in Sheffield, you know, uh, you know, had a, you know, didn't have a, particularly tough upbringing or particularly privileged privileged upbringing you know it was you know my mum and dad provided as, as much as they could for me but I think the, the one thing I was I was I was definitely kind of a bit green to the world and you know I remember being sat in meetings or you know even in the staff room and and people would say things or ask you to do things and I'd you know it, it was before the time you had internet on your phone or anything like that and, and I'd be sat there going I've got no idea what what on earth that means or what I'm supposed to be doing so you know back in the day I'd make a note for it you know go home dial up the you know com, you know broadband get in trouble from mum for uh, for kicking her off the phone lines and and whatever else not but just just trying to learn and I think it was probably at that that point that you know I I thought anyone who who's reasonably good at sport in a school you know you, you're quite high up the social hierarchy in a school like you kind of quite quite close to being top top dog and then all of a sudden I'd kind of gone into the you know two days later leaving school you're right at the very bottom end of the the ladder and you've got to kind of um you know learn that experience again so for me it was I quite quickly realized you know I've got some learning to do um and it was just my way of kind of learning so just jot little notes down things that had happened in the day or the week or things people had said and yeah we're just trying to always go in and learn and do a bit of research and find out what, what exactly they meant or what they were going on about well Liam in those early years of working at the club how important was it for you to have people around you who actually believed in you and what you were doing yeah, 100% look that you know Eric Eric Randerson um, who was my boss at the time, 100%. That's his great human talent that he had. He just gave you a belief in your own abilities and would just back you. You know, in terms of his leadership style and something that, you know, he was so empathetic. He understood things from your, your point of view. Hopefully he won't be too, too disappointed in me saying this, but he, he wasn't a technician. You know, he wasn't a, you know, a most finite kind of finance director or a chief exec from that point, but he just had this great ability to, to make you believe in yourself um, and, and give you the confidence um, to try things. And then if you failed or if you fell, he would pick you back up, you know, he, he'd dust you down and, and, and he'd help you. And I think for me, that was just, a, you know, right at the very beginning, it was just exactly what, what I needed at, at that moment in time. Um, and I think the best thing that, you know, that, you know, now looking back, maybe from Eric's eyes, looking at me, I was probably a little bit, a little bit cocky, a little bit kind of had my own ideas. And, and yet he still had the humility to let me kind of, learn from those experiences 
you know, gave me the opportunity to, to experience new things. But like I said, he, he was there for if I did fall or if I did fail. So I'll be eternally grateful to, to Eric for that support that he gave me throughout the years. And, and look, he, he's still working now and he, he still does a very similar role. And he, you know, he continues to do that for many other generations. So, yeah, there's a lot of people that will be indebted to Eric, that is for sure. Hmm. Now, you've mentioned previously that you're now at Lincoln. Now, in 2017, an opportunity did present itself for you to move over to Lincoln. How did that opportunity come about and what was it about uh, Lincoln City Football Club that actually appealed to you? I, th- I think first and foremost, you know, I was, I was Chief Operating Officer at, at Club Doncaster, so I suppose it was the natural next step. You know, geography-wise, it, it, it worked really well, but I think the, the link ultimately came about through somebody I'd, I'd known at Doncaster who was helping the board out at Lincoln. You know, the club had appointed Danny and Nicky Cowley as managers in the summer before. The club had gone on the dramatic rise, had been promoted to the Football League, had reached the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. Um, and I think they, you know, the, the club were, were looking for somebody, you know, that could kind of match Danny and Nicky's enthusiasms and their, their work ethic and their long working hours. But equally, they were willing to take somebody that was taking a, a chief exec role for the very first time. So it was a, a great opportunity that kind of my pathway and, and Lincoln's trajectory kind of met itself. And, you know, from there, you know, Bob Dorian was the chairman at the time. Um, he didn't stay in post in long, but, you know, the chairman now is a, is a guy called Clive Nates. And again, a very different leader but somebody that's been such an inspiration to me um you know the the humility and the humble nature you know he's he's a his trade was was as a hedge fund manager in in the finance district in johannesburg yet you know he's plied his trade um and the way he operates lincoln and the way he expects me to operate with with such humility and integrity um it was just great opportunity kind of my ethos his ethos kind of aligning and matching and it was too too good an opportunity to turn down and, and thankfully you know, the journey that we've been on together since then has, has been a, a pretty successful one. That's not just from a football side, I think from, from everything we've done on, off, on and off the field, but, you know, his whole vision and values just, just completely aligned to how I believe a football club should be run and, and things that, that, that should go on. And thankfully he's empowered me and given me the, the bandwidth and the freedom to, to deliver that for them. So when you did actually join Lincoln, uh, Liam, you... What kind of management style was required for you to get those early business wins? So I think, being being honest, walking into the club first and foremost, you know, whilst the footballing side had had been on this great success story, the off-field team, it was, you know, it was clear to see they'd been, you know, beaten up over the years, you know, uh, non-league existence had been punishing um, you know, the the year that the club did have the rapid rise, the resource off the field probably didn't quite match, you know, what was needed. So everybody was, you know, I think everybody was tired. They were exhausted. You know, it, it was, a, you know, the environment walking into was one that I think everybody was kind of clinging on by their fingernails to the pace that this journey was was going on. And I think the first thing that was needed was, was just a great deal of empathy and understanding the position that they were in. You know, here was I coming in with these grand ideas of how we could move things forward. But first and foremost, we, we had to build some foundations and just get things on some solid footing. Um, so it was definitely a case of, of walking be, before we could we could run. And, you know, there was a great deal of experience in the football club. There was people that had been there for 25, 30 years, you know, that, that knew the football club inside out. You know, they knew its strengths, knew its weaknesses. So I think that the first thing I did and I wanted to ensure I did was I didn't come in as this kind of the new boy 
green to the football club and just thought we'll, we'll rip everything up and change things. It was about understanding the pace of the organisation, matching that first of all, and trying to just work with the team to, to move things forward step by step. And over the course of time, I, you know, I did become a little bit more kind of, uh, the approach to become a, a little bit more di- dictator-like in its style as, as the pressure was was put on and we needed to move things. But the first 90 days in the very early phase, it, it was very much about trying to trying to be as empathetic as we possibly could be and, and just trying to, to get a real perspective from their eyes and get their lens on things for, for how the football club needed to move and, um, and move forward. It's interesting you say that. And in our book, we actually wrote about that in terms of building relationships with people and entering the world on their level, matching them, mirroring things that they do in order to then move them to where you want to take them. And it's it's interesting that you've obviously brought that up. Now, from my standpoint, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were 26 when you took up, when you started as CEO, is that correct? I was, t- I was, I was, that was at uh, Club Doncaster Foundation. So my first chief exec's job was at 26. Yeah, that's, that's right. So from, from 26 there and then moving on to Lincoln and becoming the youngest CEO in the football league at the time, as somebody so young or so youthful in age, how were you able to get messages across and even persuade people that have been in positions for a long, a longer time that have maybe many more years of experience or many more years in the game than you had? What, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, good. No, that's a, that's a great, great point. Um, I think, look, uh, first of all, by, by the time I'd walked through the doors at Lincoln, I, I had nine years of senior management, you know, chief exec ex- experience or, or senior exec experience, which experience isn't always the number of wrinkles. It, it's kind of the miles that you've walked in various different uh, walks of life. And, and I think first and foremost, um, I think what, what I wanted to do and, and naturally what had, you know, had to be respectful to the people that were in post and the great job that they'd done. You know, if I'd had 25 years experience or 35 years experience, I'd have liked to have thought I'd have, I'd have still taken the same approach in, in making sure that I would, you know, the, the phrase I use is we weren't looking for my best ideas. We were looking for the, you know, for the team's best ideas. And, and we had to make sure that we were collaborating Um of course, you you know, whenever you walk into any new locker room or any new environment, you've got to earn your stripes. And I was very, very aware of that. You know, the young boy walking in, you know, um, making sure that I didn't want to go in with the big size 11s and, and just kind of start ripping things up. I had to gain their confidence and, and their trust. But I think that the the big thing that helped me at Lincoln, if, I, if I'm truthfully honest with you, is, is because of the, the club and, and the trajectory it had been on and the history, you know, they, they were actually just crying out for somebody to lead them and support them and give them the support I had. So I didn't feel like I was facing many battles. You know, it wasn't like I was every day I was struggling to, to fight to get them to believe in some thing um we, we talked often about the kind of kubler ross and the, the the stages of of grief and the stages of change from denial resistance exploration and commitment you know we had that slide up almost every single monday meeting you know because the role i would play is i would almost take that role of the quirky child and just ask questions you know why why do we do it that way what's the reason but are you sure and and we used to laugh about it you know the the diagram because they were you know rammed it down the throat but let's not be in denial about that the change is needed you know let's let's understand you know that we are on this journey together and we are working collaboratively and 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 that kind of 
you know that that diagram that was on the the canty on the on the on the staff room wall and in every meeting you know it almost became a focal point and where i suppose my uh, my interventions could be excused by this academic theory and the reason why why i was why i was doing it so i wasn't doing it just to get the guns out and you know be the boss in a sense it, it, it was for a purpose and, and people understood that which which quite quickly created an environment where check and challenge was was allowed you know for the first few weeks what i felt was that it was either agree or argue you know you could either agree with a colleague or it was a big argument and there's so much space between agree and argue and it was just creating the environment that uh, we needed to do and and that was through the colleagues, not me. They created the environment but where it was acceptable to ask questions and to challenge and that, that would, they would freely you know, wel- welcome that. And, and I was very grateful for their support in achieving that in the early days. I guess that's the money shot. I use a, a term currently where it's where they were and where they want to be. It's what you do between the space. It's the gap between the, the space of where you are, where you want to be and getting clarity in around that. Now, currently, uh, the club's doing very well, uh, pushing for promotion into the championship. With the football team doing very well, how does it impact on how you go about doing your, your daily job? The reason why people support Lincoln City, a fewfold, but first of all, they, they do want to see success on the pitch. So, you know, success on the pitch certainly helps smooth the path and makes the day job a, a little bit easier. There, there, is no, there is no doubt about it. There was a time at Doncaster where we, we had two relegations in three years and, you know, that, that, was, that was a tough period of, of time, that, that is for sure. Um, equally, it brings pressure with it. You know, expectation rises. Um, you know, my, my job ultimately is to create the conditions for sporting success. It's up to the manager, the recruitment team to, to, to do the rest. And, you know, I've got to make sure that I'm supporting them as colleagues, making sure that they feel supported in the environment and, and, and equally that, you know, we're continuously pushing the, the club onto, onto new levels. Obviously, the, the pandemic that we're in the middle of right now has, has certainly come along and, and presented a number of, of challenges. But ultimately, you know, we, we um, you know, without sounding crass or inappropriate, we, we see that as an opportunity as well that, you know, we, we, we hopefully we've got the dexterity and we've got the ability to kind of move with this. And, and, and hopefully it can be something that not that we'd ever want to use it to our advantage, but we can seek the opportunity um, that there is at this moment in time that, you know, the, the football market being, being put into a little bit of chaos and, and hopefully use that as an opportunity to take a step forward as a football club. Now, you've been at Lincoln for a few years and you do have a mantra. Do you mind sharing what that is and what it means to you and for the club as a business? Yeah, well, well, there's, there's a few. Um, I, I think, you know, first of all, you know, no, no surprises is, is, is one of them. And, and that's across just the leadership team in the fact that we, we work together. And look, frankly put, we all make mistakes. We all, we all cock up. But let's not hide that from each other. You know, let, let, let's make sure that we, we share in that and we, we can help each other out. So, you know, I always say to the guys, look, you know, don't give me any surprises. And, and, and if you've come with me with a problem or we've made a mistake, you know, we'll, we'll work it out together. But the last thing I want to do is, is find out about a faux pas that we've made in the papers or by the, the press phoning up or by even, you know, even worse, the chairman phoning up and going, bloody hell, what on earth have you guys been doing? So, yeah, we, 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 we work, you know, there are a couple of conditions and rules that we have. 
um, and that is one that, that we have between us and, it, and it's a it's a verbal contract we have within each other I ha, I'm expected to operate to the same rules so I you know I will I shouldn't ever surprise the the exec team or, or the guys you know I shouldn't say something in front of the chairman or in front of the board that I wouldn't say to them you know in a one-to-one -one level or whatever it may be and and hopefully what that does is it creates an environment where everybody every meeting environment or every you know time that you go into a pressure situation you know there's no curveballs coming you know you're on the same team um and ultimately collaboratively we, we we can all achieve success and obviously that continues that's taken a while to to develop i'm sure to build that element of trust that is the case and i think i'm well known and, and the guys love to give me a bit of grief for you know the few cliches that that roll off the tongue and 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 whatever else not but um but yeah, I, th I think definitely is a process, you know, what, what you can't do is you can't walk into a new organization or you can't build a team and go, this is the rules we're going to play by. OK, everybody play by them, because ultimately well, you, you can do that. But ultimately, you, you're just dictating the rules of engagement and, and ultimately not collaborating and get people's people's buy in. And I think over the course of time, either people that I'd worked pre in previous roles with that, that we brought into the club or people that were at the club that, you know, got to know me better, that, that kind of, that, that kind of credit was, was built up in the relationship where we, we began to trust each other. And, and ultimately trust isn't about when you're doing well, trust is about that you, when you're at your most vulnerable and, and when you, you know, when you need people's support and, and help. And hopefully what we've done in a, in a, in a high performance environment and in a culture that, you know, you do want natural winners and you do want people to eke out every ounce of performance. What we have done is we've created a team first approach and a culture where, um, people do understand the value of team and, and understand that, you know, working collaboratively is about the sum of all parts pulling together, not about one man or woman, you know, doing the heroics. Mm, great point. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Coach K from Duke University, the basketball coach. So he's, he wrote a book called Leading with the Heart. And there's a quote in the book that says, the fact that I don't have a hard and fast rule gives me flexibility. It provides me the latitude to lead. It also allows me to show that I care about the kids on my team and it demonstrates that I'm trying to be fair-minded. And that, what you've just said, reminded me of that quote that, that Coach K used because it's not always about having strict rules in place where it has to be this way. There's also, there may be extenuating circumstances where things can be changed and adapted and also there may be guidelines where there's flexibility. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it really just took me back to that quote that I've heard, um, I've heard before and you kind of echoed what that, that said. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's guidelines, not rules. It is. It's exactly that, you know, you can snooker yourself if you, if you, if you want to take a, a single approach to, to anything and, ultimately we're human beings and people achieve great things um, and you've just got to create the environment that each and every individual can thrive in their in their own environment you know on, on the flip of that the one thing I, I always say to the team is, is don't confuse my kindness for weakness do want to win we are ambitious so we, you know we, we don't create a, a woolly fluffy soft environment where failure and mistakes are, are just just washed over and they're accepted far, far from it. But it's about having that right blend and that right balance between drive and determination. But but nobody wants to live and operate in fear. That that's not a nice existence for anybody. And I think, you know, absolutely right. Like, you know, just like the, the quote, fundamentally, you know, 
in any business, in any sector, trying to get a performance out of a team, be that a finance team or a football team, you know, it's important that you understand the individuals inside, what makes them tick and, and create, you know, create that environment. And, you know, if, if I go at Lincoln City, well, this is the single playbook and this is how we're going to do it. Well, that might suit 50% of the team and all it's going to do is, is, is alienate the other 50%. So, yeah, it's just making sure you play the right right cards at the right time with the right people. Know know what motivates people. The, the, you know the good thing of working together. They you know they know I like my little Friday morning update and, and emails before I chase them. You know they understand what makes me tick. So over the course of time and as you build up that relationship, as much as I'm giving to them, they're they're giving back to me and and, and helping manage me and manage. You know the, I don't like the term managing up because that suggests a hierarchy, but but just managing you know managing each other through that process and understanding that we've got different needs i think that's important a few times you've said this now working with working together it's not working for and and i i find that quite interesting as well are you even though you actually may be in charge you're in charge of what's going on but you're working with the, these people you're working together with them to this common goal of whatever it is you want to achieve you're going in the right direction by working together and working with each other. Well, yeah, well, one hundred percent. You know, you've, we've got a problem if I'm, if I think, if I think I am, or if I am. You know, the knowledge, the, the fountain of knowledge on, on each area and each, um, you know, each sector when, when we have our various meetings. That that's certainly not the case. So, you know, we're, we're quite proud. We, you know, we call it a flexible hierarchy. But you know, if we're having a meeting about a commercial decision, then you know, the head of commercial or the director of commercial should be in charge of that meeting and should set the pace and should set the tone and I should work for them um you know ultimately I have to you know sign off those decisions and have to take the wrath of the board if it, if it goes wrong but my role there is just to support them and to make sure that you know we we get to the to the right outcome so yeah one of the things that you know I'm definitely not precious about is you know having the end seat at the table when you know when you get around the meeting tables or when you're allowed I, I just think it's just such a false leadership knowing when to shut up and say nothing is is equally as important um as, as knowing when when to speak up and, and say something and well, i'm very fortunate that we've got a team of real diligent people at lincoln city that that understand that importance and and yeah they they allow me to to attend you know to attend many meetings and say very little at all um other than support them which i'm you know i'm, I'm very grateful for just picking up on certain language your support comes out of your mouth quite a lot, which is must be for the people working and around you, uh, quite nice to listen to. Now, stretching and support, so stretch and support, but equally now, when, you, when you're actually working to develop both yourself and the club, because it's something taking place, how have, how have you developed the ability to, to balance, filter out emotions and still be able to make solid, informed leadership decisions? I think one of the, the things that in hindsight worked work really well is having, you know, having a leadership role at 24 when, you know, you've, you know, far from having fully kind of socially matured. You know, I probably went through a few, a few experiences at that age where, you know, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, know I was heading for, for tough times or you, you know the intrepidation or the fear wasn't there I suppose the, the best analogy I can probably give for it is you know it's almost like as a, as a young boy if you kick your football up into the tree you know you climb the tree you don't think about the fear of falling from the tree and 
breaking a bone or whatever it may be, you just quickly want your football back. And But as an adult, you know, lives and falls teach you, well, it might be better to leave the ball in the tree and just go buy a new football. And I think probably at a young age, when I was kind of learning my craft, I was just that young young boy just climbing that tree every single time and, you know, sometimes falling and just dusting myself down. And I think that builds a certain resilience um, into you. You know, one of my first jobs as as, as a chief exec was was making a number of redundancies and, and and quite tough with that was making redundancies of people that you know three months ago were, were my seniors or, or certainly were my, my, my peers um, and, and that was a really really emotionally a, a tough process and I didn't approach it with a strategy looking back I just approached it being Liam and and that was you know HR might have been saying oh well this is the playbook and this is what you've got to do and this is what you can and can't say and and truth be told you know HR would probably have a fit if they heard any of the conversations that I've I'd have had at the time because I just went in and and tried to be as honest as I could with those people and it was a it was a it was a, it was a bruising experience I certainly didn't enjoy it um but it but but it toughened me up. It, it, it there was an you know an element of resilience there. And look, you know the one thing I think I'll definitely have to thank my parents for growing growing up is is the resilience that they gave me. Because um, I think you know I'm very fortunate that I can compartmentalize. You know I do have a, a nothing box as my wife often tells me when I'm when I'm sat at home and she's chatting to me and and whatever else not. And you know thankfully I am able to put the stresses and the toils of a of a day. You know, behind me, and and that that certainly helps. So having an on-off switch, yeah, yeah, definitely definitely helps. You know, equally making sure you're not cold to people's emotions, but yeah, you know, there has to be a time and a space where where you're able to kind of clear your mind and and get away from it. And and thankfully, that's a, a God-given gift I, I have. I think. Yeah, and I love the analogy about the climbing the tree. And as a as a kid, you climb it, you fall out, and you mentioned that a few times you climbed the tree to get your ball back, you fell out and you just had to dust yourself off. Now, moving forward from that, there comes a point where you may face similar decisions or similar situations. How important was the reflection looking back from maybe climbing those trees, falling out, having maybe not made the right decision or could have made a better decision and reflecting back to go, you know what, next time, I might do it differently. I might make a different decision. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, and I think the, the, the other thing that I've, I've always done is I've been a reflective person. So I've always looked back, I've considered decisions and, and asked, you know, I, I've always, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes, but I've just tried to never make the same mistake twice. Um, although I'm sure, I, I'm sure I have done. And I think, you know, learning from experiences, but, but both ways, you know, just because it's a fail or a fall, doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing. Maybe the execution of the task wasn't quite right. Um, and I think what a lot of life experience can often teach you sometimes is to be a little bit too safe or or to not stretch yourself and not to put yourself out. So I think it goes back to the days of Eric Randerson um, when I first joined Doncaster or even Clive Nates, the chairman of Lincoln City, who are just wholly supportive of you if you make mistakes or wholly supportive in terms of getting to the right outcome. It's not about chastising or it's not about uh, looking for blood. And I think that that's definitely helped. Um, and then something, you know, I obviously try and try and um, kind of, you know, uh, principles that, that, that I operate by. And I think, you know, making mistakes and, and falling or whatever, you know, you definitely can't be blasé to it. That, that That's the case. You know, you have to learn from those experiences. But equally, you know, 
you know, doing an autopsy on it to the point where you're unpicking it and unpicking it and, and you can't let it drop. I don't think that's healthy either. You know, making sure you get a right balance between, you know, reviewing what, what's, what's been and gone, um, but, but equally having the objectivity and the open mind, you know, you know, without having, you know, without, you know, quoting other books and, and you know, massive Matthew Say junkie, but, you know, from, from closed loop thinking, uh, just, just making sure you are open-minded to, um, to, to kind of, uh, reviewing things but but aware that you might make need to make changes if you were to do that that same thing again so when you're working in around your team your team's around you uh, and in this fast pace that you're currently working in the team's doing very well uh, we've got challenges that we face covid's here currently how do you find the balance between leading your team leading others and still being productive yourself yeah that's you know I- the, the people around me certainly help because they at executive level day to day, they hold me to account as well. And I think that that's really important. The, the one thing that my style has developed as I've, as I've gone on is, is I empower people more and I, and I, and I trust them to kind of get, get the job done. You know, I used to kind of copy was going out. I'd be rewriting, you know, the copy time and time again, and, and ultimately kind of finessing it to a point that it, it, it wasn't productive. And I think, it, it, you know, respecting boundaries and having clear roles and responsibilities is, is, is really important. You know, having, you know, we, we, we call it a terms of reference of how we operate with, with each member of, of, of staff. When I'm meeting with our finance director, I shouldn't be trying to outfinance the finance director at finance. And, and, and likewise, you know, commercial or the football manager or whatever it may be. So it is about, you know, knowing, knowing your place and, and adding value. And I think, it, you know, the thing that I always want to do at the end of every day is, is ask myself the question, have I added value? And, and that might be to my own specific roles and responsibilities, therefore, you know, leading the football club. Or have I added value to, to others? And, and if I've not, then that's been a poor day. So in your opinion based off what you're sharing with us, what do you believe to be most sought after skill of outstanding chief execs? Um, I think it's really difficult because it's an industry that famously called the Piranha Club and it is very competitive and and frankly put, it's a great industry, you know, stealing someone else's quote here, but great industry with a lot of not very nice people. You definitely can't be too too soft or naive or green, but I think that the biggest thing you can have is in any team sport or any team environment is is understanding and collaboration. You know, knowing knowing your place um, is equally important. Um, there are a lot of egos in in football and competitive sport, and rightly so. You know, it, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of confidence to stand on a green rectangle every Saturday at three o'clock in front of ten thousand people and go and perform. You know, and, and what you can't do is you can't just turn that on and off. You've got to understand that you know people's makeup need needs that, and you know that ability to puff the chest out um, and have confidence in their ability. You, you don't want to stifle that. So I think I think the biggest thing is is just knowing your place in each environment and each situation. That yeah, there, there may be times that you've got to put the boss hat on and, and rule the roost a little bit. But more often than not, I think you can you know through a bit of finesse, you 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 don't have to to lead by dictating. You you can lead by just following, taking the lead of others and and understanding the environment. You know, being a bit of a chameleon and and just blending in with the environment and the situation. I think is is always important. In a bit in a business context, we hear about employers caring and, and really caring for their employees. And in, in your case, it'll be employees and fans. What does cur look like for you and how have you shown it? 
I think first and foremost, the biggest way you can show care for someone is time and giving them time and, and giving them the respect of your time. I think there's nothing more valuable in life than your time. And you might have a really busy day, but you know, without sounding cliche, having the open door policy, um, I think is really is really important. And look, the, quite frankly and honestly, there'll be times where people have knocked on the door and they've said, "Can I have five minutes?" And I'll go, "Well, I'll give you four, and I'll do my best." And you know, there's times where you can see that disappoints people. But making sure that you show people that you you care and that you're willing to see it through their lens is important. You might not always agree. And, and equally, I think the other thing as well is, is being honest with people, because if they, if they sit and have a conversation and they want your honesty, yet you don't give it, and that in time goes on, they find out that you weren't honest with them, that you lose all credibility. So sometimes delivering a tough message or a hard message or providing people feedback that they don't want to hear, but be, you know, looking them in the eyes and giving them that feedback, that's more powerful than implicating them. Or, or just sitting there and, and stroking their stroking their ego or, or saying what they want to hear. And I suppose it's a similar relationship with the fans. I think the one thing that they want is that they, they know you're busy and they know that you can't have a one-to-one relationship with 10,000 people, but they just want to know that you care for their football club as much as they do. And, you know, they might not always agree with the decisions we make, but at least if they understand them or at least understand the rationale of how we how we got there. So I do think we, we as a football club go a long way to explaining some of our decisions and, 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 and over communicating at, at times. But I'd rather be accused of over communicating and saying too much than not communicating at all, you know, providing people your time. Um, it, it is, is, is something that is free, but, but means a lot. And I think that's, that's something that you should always give to people. You have mentioned, you mentioned time, giving people the time. From your standpoint, you're limited for time in terms of the roles that you have. You'll have meetings, you'll have all kinds of things going on that are important. How do you manage your own time? Um, I think compartmentalising is, is important. Um you know, uh, you know, I've got a responsibility as a husband and as a dad as well at, at home, and it's important. I give those people who are very important in my life. I give, I give them the time as as well. So, I think for me, you know, you, you just, you know, there, there are certain little contracts you sign with people. So, my wife, the one rule is no phones at the dinner table. Uh, that's a red card offence if um, if that happens. And you know, in fairness to her, she's she's pretty exceptional. You know, other than that, you know, we might be three minutes into a film or whatever else not. And if the phone rings and it's important, she she just accepts that that's part of the course. But, you know, I just have to respect her rules and her boundaries. And, you know, an example of no phones at the dinner table being, you know, being being one of them. And I think it's similar with with everybody. You know, you, you be it's not always explicit, but you, you have a little contract, you know, with people, you know, when you work in football, you know, when you're working a lot of Saturdays, Sunday, Sundays should be sacred. I try and avoid my best not to avoid people on a Sunday unless, you know, unless something's on fire, you know, try and give them that that space that they need and, and equally try and give my family, you know, that that time back that they deserve and they need as, as well. And I think as long as people, are, are, you know, know what the boundaries are or know what principles you're working to, you know, the, the thing that we would all colleagues at Lincoln City would take a dim view on. If somebody said, can I have five minutes of your time and five minutes turned into an hour, that's poor because that's that's poor contracting. But if someone says, 
I need an hour of your time, squeeze me in, then, then you've got a responsibility to find that hour for them. So it's about the nuance of, of that language. And we call it a high performance language in, in, in the club. So for example, don't tell me something's urgent if you've sat on it for five weeks and the deadline's tomorrow, because it's not urgent. The only reason it's urgent is because somebody's messed up. So what we would prefer at Lincoln City is for someone to say, I've messed up. I've sat on something for five weeks. My deadline's tomorrow, so this now has become urgent. And at least at that point, everybody is walking into it with their eyes open. They know what the, the terms of reference are with that. But going, it's urgent, well, that's a lie. Um, and that's what we try and breed with, within people and the rules I'm expected to operate by as well as others. Lots of clarity right from the get-go, being honest with people. Now, how have you helped talented people, talented employees, but... They've been underperforming employees. How have you helped them to, to function more effectively? I think with any employee like that that you described, the best thing that you can do for them is, is give them grief and, and motivate them and challenge them. Because, you know, if, if there's somebody that's really talented and you just accept subpar performances, then you're failing them as much as they're failing themselves. So, you know, some of the most talented people in our organisations are probably the most that, that you know, if, they, if you were to ask them, I'm guessing that they would say that they get the most amount of grief or challenge from, from me in a sense. And there's, there's, there's somebody I'm thinking of right now, you know, someone, a relatively young person in the organisation, a real, real talented individual. But, you know, it took, took a lot of, to drag a performance out of them at, at times. And, you know, we had some tough conversations. You know, there was times that I was, you know, pretty incessant in terms of demanding more from them, but only when they came out of the, the the tunnel at the other side did you know was there a reflection point that we you know we had a laugh and a joke about it and said you know we do realise we were doing this for the for the good reasons. Um, it, it's making sure that you you know it'd be really easy to let people down by letting them operate within their comfort zone and and not really stretch them. And I, and I think the biggest thing that you know one of the biggest things you can do as a as a leader. Is, is challenge people and stretch them, like you said earlier, um, to, to, to achieve their, their maximum potential. And I think the most pleasing thing for that is I, I love it when our team members get headhunted and go on to bigger and better things. That's success. You know, keeping hold of them for, for forever, whilst it would be nice, you know, isn't, isn't the objective. If they can go on to a, a bigger football club, a higher profile role, whatever it may be, that, that's success. That's success for the team. So, you know, we're, we're incredibly proud when people do that and we absolutely celebrate it when they do. While that is, it's a great success in regard to the fact that you've, you've had people come into your environment that have then gone on, gone on elsewhere because of the great job that they've done. It then leaves a gap for you to fill. How do you know when you're bringing people in that you're bringing the right people into your environment? And what do you do to ensure that you really get the best person possible? Yeah, look, the, you know, the biggest thing you can do to disrupt any team is bring somebody in that's going to disrupt that harmony. They can be the most talented person um, you know, in the world, but if they disrupt the overall harmony, then, then that's not, not success. Um, so I think whenever you're looking to interview people or whenever we're looking to replace and bring people in, the first thing we look for is a, is a cultural fit and, and making sure that they they can work in our environment and, and we can get the best out of best out of them as much as as as, as vice versa, really. You know, beyond that, then that becomes down to the technical competencies and and the fine tuning and the nuances of their skill and their, their, their trade. Um, 
but but ultimately we would never bring anybody into our team that could or would disrupt that harmony just because they're a, they're an absolute genius at, at x y and z um you know it got to be team first it's got to complement the the overall in, environment i think from a from a sporting point of view and then from a from a, an elite performance point of view that kind of can at times be a bit more difficult you know maverick footballers or maverick performers you know they they do have their role and, and that's about getting the right blend but certainly in a back office or in an administration function yeah in you know the harmony is is really really important and, and for me you know nothing comes comes ahead of culture well with that you've you've obviously made some extremely big business decisions during your relatively young career in the game when you reflect back now, what is it that lets you know that you're making the right decisions? Great question. I think we, we surround ourselves with data and, and input and information. And I think in, in making any decision, and especially decisions that could be 50-50, you know, the, the chances of getting them right as wrong you know, are, are, are equal. But what I firmly believe in is if we surround ourselves with information, data, get as much input before you make that decision. Ultimately, then somebody has to, to pull the trigger and make a call and be that a collaborative team decision, be that one that, that you know I have to take on the chin and make myself. But as long as you get as much input as you can before you decide the output, I think that's all you can do. I think the fails and the learning that I've had where I've made mistakes is where I could have done more in that space. I could have you know had more input, more information, sought more opinions, maybe extracted more data, um, before actually actually making those decisions. So, you know, a, a quick example would be we, we're very proud of the supporters board at, at Lincoln City. So they are a cross group of fans. They don't claim to represent anybody. You know, some are season ticket holders, some are not, some are single parents, um, some, some are older people, younger people. It, it's, a, it's a mixture and it's a blend. And all we do is, you know, before making any serious fan decisions, we'll, we'll take a decision to them or we'll take an opinion to them and, and ask for their, for their thoughts and their opinions. Often, you know, they, they come up with the views or points that we may not have considered and then we need to go back and reconsider our decision and, and reflect on that. And, you know, never letting pride come before a fall, I think is one thing, you know, I've, you know, we've made decisions before where you're, you're pretty much the ink is drying. And then at that point, you probably realise it's the wrong decision. And the last thing you should do there is try and style it out or use the bravado to, to push it through. At that point, the biggest thing you can do is hold your hands up, say sorry, reflect and, and change course. What 100%, you know, the, the, the biggest fail of, of all time is, is, is committing to something, knowing that it's going to be a fail. And, and that's where, you know, I think maybe being junior in my years and younger in my years, probably with less expectation to get everything right. I think that's helped. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, I can go, sorry, we've, we've messed up there, but we'll, we'll rectify it by, I think that that's important as well. You're working in a, in and around high performance environments. You're working in one currently, who knows what the future holds. What is it that great leaders do? What do they need to do to stay great? Uh, constantly learning, I think, has, has got to be the, the number one thing. You know, you, you're constantly going on that journey. If your role is to add value to the team, the biggest thing you can do is gain more knowledge yourself to try and to try and pass on in some way, shape or form to, to those team members. You know, the bosses that I've worked for, from, from Eric to Clive Nates as chairman, I had a chief, a group chief executive, Doncaster, Gavin Baldwin, who was a real planet brain, a real, you know, I won't call him an introvert, but, 
you know, he's a real super intelligent. When, when you were in a meeting with Gavin, he was five steps ahead of anyone in the room. And, and it's almost like those three different bosses um, or those various different bosses have all had very different kind of superpowers that, you know, that I've been able to learn from. Um, and not necessarily having a superpower myself, I think you just then try and blend and, and, and learn from those people um, and try and adapt and, and bring that into each environment. So you've know, never been too, too big or full of yourself to think that you have all the answers to all the questions, I think is the, is the most in, important thing that any leader can bring. The caveat to that is you've got to inspire confidence. So if you're going into every meeting going, well, I don't know the answer. What do you think? You know, there's got to be a balance to that, but a mixture of inspiring confidence, provide giving giving people the abilities to go and do their skill and do their thing, whilst being you know objective enough. I think they're the the real kind of cornerstones of, of good leadership. Certainly in, in my playbook, um, I'm sure there are many other styles and, and, and variances to that. So, if Liam Scully had to describe himself, what would he say? Um, good question. Um, at times, a, a control freak. I can be. I can be obsessive, but I think I hope within that there would be people that would say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm empathetic and I'm and I'm caring. I think if you could ask me one thing that you would, I would want to be described by others. I would say credible. You know, the last thing I would want is anyone to think I'm robbing a living or don't know what I'm doing and I've, I've got here by um, by luck, not, not judgment. So, you know, I'd love to be known as credible. Um, I'd love to be known as hardworking and caring and conscientious and appreciate some of those things and maybe opposite and, and, and don't necessarily blend together. But hopefully there's there's a, enough in the bag between all those things that, that the team members see, see in me and, and enjoy working together with us for the greater good. So Liam, it's been very informative but if any one of our listeners wanted to reach out to you, how can they contact you? So I love social media. So I'm on Twitter, you know, Liam J. Scully or at Liam J. Scully. Equally, if you write into to Lincoln City, feedback, uh, feedback at theredimps.com. I get, you know, market for my attention. Um, I'll certainly um, certainly look out for, for any emails. But yeah, you know, just uh, it would be great to connect with people. And, and Actually, thank you to you both for um, inviting me on to this uh, podcast. Very humbled to uh, to be part of it. Well, thank you. It's I know I speak for David and myself. It's been very informative, uh, very clear and very transparent in everything that you do. And it seems that yeah, there's a vision out there and definitely a drive to continue to to push forward. We certainly wish you well for the rest of the season. Uh, good luck, and uh, we know you've got some important games coming up. Bless you now. Thank, thank you very much, both. Do appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated. And it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>